You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I think, you know, when you use that as sort of the backdrop and then overlay incremental demand for EV infrastructure and EVs themselves, I mean, you could be looking at $4 copper uh, relatively quickly, you know, in the next couple of years for sure. You are listening to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Thanks for tuning in again today. You'll be hearing from battery metals expert Chris Berry, president of House Mountain Partners, LLC. Again, a returning guest. If you're not familiar with Chris's work and his website, you can find more info at discoveryinvesting.com. Also give Chris a follow on Twitter at CBerry, B-E-R-R-Y, the number one. And uh, Chris, thanks for joining me again today. And as I was going through your Twitter feed and uh, seeing what you've been posting in response to Tesla's battery day on the 22nd of September, you said, anyone besides me come away from battery day with more questions than answers. And then I noticed a lot of the replies that you got were very unfavorably disposed towards Elon and Tesla. So I would like to get your initial reaction. What did you mean with that tweet? And what's your thoughts about the replies to your tweet? Yeah, thanks, uh, Bill, for having me on again. Look, I I just thought um, I, I did not mean to inject myself into the Tesla Q debate. Um, actually, it's funny. I've got Tesla, the ticker Tesla and Tesla Q muted on Twitter because it's just it's a little bit more. I find it to be counterproductive to watch people go back and forth. Um, but nevertheless, you know, what, what did I mean? Well, look, I thought battery day uh, was a little bit of a disappointment in some instances. I mean, I think a lot of what people um, were hoping for maybe didn't necessarily materialize or, or was already baked in the cake. I mean, dry electrodes, tabless batteries, you know, those are rumors, were rumors that had been floating around for, for a long time. And so when they were announced, I think that a lot of people just sort of you know, sort of weren't as maybe impressed or floored as as they should have been. You know, the the real root of all of the questions that I had with respect to Battery Day was when Elon talked about producing, um, you know, battery quality lithium material in Nevada from clay using table salt and water. And you know, look, we we all know many of us on the podcast that are at all involved in mining know that there's a lot of nuance involved in that. It is true that, um, you know, lithium has never been produced from clay uh, commercially at all. Now, that doesn't mean that it never will be, and it doesn't mean that it should not be. If you believe what Tesla was referring to when they talked about Terra being the new giga uh, in terms of scale, obviously we're going to need a lot more lithium, a lot more of these battery materials, and and clay is definitely going to play a role. Uh, Companies like Lithium America, Ioneer, Cypress, Bacanora, all are sort of pioneering work in, um, you know, clay-based lithium production. And they've made a fair fair amount of, of strides, to be fair to everybody. But, you know, nevertheless, I just thought it was a little irresponsible, actually, for Tesla to get up there and say, we're not going to use any acid. We're just going to use table salt and water, and it's minimal disturbance, and it's whatever, you know, 10,000 acres in Nevada and you know, on, on to the next challenge. So I just thought that, you know, from a question perspective, that was what really caught my eye. As mining investors, how seriously should we take Elon's words, what he says, and Tesla's impact on the mining industry? We saw Tesla 
signed an agreement with uh, Piedmont Lithium recently, and the shares went up fourfold out of the gate, and then they, they came back down a little since then. But, I mean, he's a great storyteller. He would put a lot of junior mining executives to shame with his ability to tell a story. He's an out-of-the-box thinker, so he thinks in grandiose terms. But as you pointed out, it may not be practical. As mining speculators, you know, how should we view his impact? Well, look, again, you know, Tesla's going to need, uh, just Tesla in particular is going to need a lot more uh, lithium in the future here. And so, you know, the impact, there are a lot of speculation out there about, well, why did he say all this stuff? Because, you know, in the wake of Battery Day, it really crushed um, a lot of the share prices of of lithium near-term players. And so the rumor, the thinking was, well, he's going to say this stuff, you know, effectively saying getting lithium is no problem. We've cracked the code to hit share prices and, you know, then swoop in and make some acquisition or, you know, some sort of an offtake or something like that. Um, I'm of the view that whether or not it's a technology company or an automotive company, the uh, specific issue here is that, you know, you should focus on what you're good at. Um, while I while I do think that the automotive business is probably going to vertically integrate around electrification in the coming decade or so, I'm just not convinced that a company like Tesla or even, you know, VW or Daimler or anybody like that getting into mining, in other words, mining their own material is a good idea. Okay. I think that, you know, you leave the mining to the miners. Um, you know, the challenge here, I think, is producing battery quality material at scale and, of course, doing it sustainably. Um, I would just be willing to bet that the mining companies are going to be better at accomplishing that than a Tesla would be. You know, I definitely agree with you on that. When you say when you see this vertical vertical integration, does that mean that companies like Tesla are going to be buying junior miners rather than doing partnerships with BHP or Vali or a lot of these big diversified miners? Well, it depends on the economics. I mean, Tesla obviously wants cheap raw materials, but you know, in particular, the junior mining plays um, that are not in production have to prove economics and they have to prove to, you know, their their bankers, their financiers, that sort of capital availability that they can produce for a company like Tesla, again, at scale and do so profitably. So I would think that, you know, a company like Tesla or any major automotive manufacturer would start by going um, and speaking with existing mining companies um, and talking about the ability to to add capacity and again do so sustainably, but you know, look from a from a speculator perspective, as you referenced before, Bill. Obviously, you know the, the real money to be made, quite frankly, is is in investing in these <clears throat> juniors. I mean, doing a deal with a company as large and as impactful as Tesla, you know, is going to help the share price, and of course, you know, a higher share price minimizes dilution and also. I think helps in terms of raising the hundreds of millions of dollars that these junior mining companies are going to need to ultimately get into production. So there's no quick or easy fix, but it just seems like, you know, starting with the, you know, the Valets or the BHPs and then sort of working your way down um, would make the most sense. Chris, where is the biggest bottleneck that would hinder mass scale adoption of EVs? You know, this, this is a question that's been kicked around a lot. Um, I don't I don't know if I necessarily agree. A lot of people say, oh, it's in the charging infrastructure. And, you know, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that. I mean, that that certainly does need to ramp. OK, there's no question about it. But 
Um, you know, here in the United States, at least, most people live within 50 miles on a round trip basis of where they work. Okay. And so this idea that, well, I can't have an electric vehicle because, you know, I commute to work in my car every day. And by the time I drive, you know, to work and then drive back home, the battery's dead. That just doesn't hold any water, especially when, you know, you're going to have your own charging station in your garage. Um, battery management systems and battery energy density continue to improve on a year-over-year basis. Again, my, my view, to answer your question specifically, Bill, where the bottlenecks are is, I think, you know, look, it's sort of like a pinch and a swell type of thing. I mean, I think that producing battery quality material at scale is something that this industry, this, this EV industry, the supply chain, has not really had to do. Okay, you're looking at a situation where, I think globally, EV penetration is at 1.9 or 2% today, uh, going to as high as 10% by 2025. And I'm of the view that you know we won't get above 10% in the next five years without, again, not just the Albemarle's and the um, SQMs, but you know these other near-term junior miners, whether or not it's lithium or nickel or cobalt also producing at scale. So, you know, my view is that, yes, infrastructure is certainly an issue. Um, I don't see consumer demand as an issue at all. Uh, and there are a number of examples to point to there. I really think that, you know, you just to take lithium as an example, it's grown at 6% per year, the demand has for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you know, through plans, you know, at gigafactory announcements and China really pushing forward in their EV adoption plans, all of a sudden lithium is set to grow at, you know, 15 or 16% per year on a compound annual growth rate basis through 2025, again, depending upon whose data you're looking at. And so this shock to the industry um, really revolves around, a success, I should say, revolves around its ability to scale battery quality material across a number of different uh, geographies and a number of different automotive manufacturers. Chris, should we still be paying attention to cobalt as mining speculators? I mean, what's the role of cobalt do you see in the EV revolution? Yeah, we, you definitely should be paying attention to it. I think that, look, we, we all know, um, or if you don't know on the on the call, that, I mean, cobalt is, is hard to play, right? I mean, there really aren't uh, pure plays out there. Uh, there are obviously in the junior space to be sure, but you know beyond Glencore, beyond Huayu Cobalt, uh, China Molybdenum. I mean these enormous companies are. You know it's not that they're not investable. I don't mean that by any stretch of the imagination, but you're really not able to easily get pure play cobalt exposure um, as as battery chemistry sort of evolves to a situation where we go from. You know, NMC cathodes, nickel, manganese, cobalt cathodes um, of equal weight. So uh, NMC 111 is the way this is referred to, about a third nickel, a third manganese, and a third cobalt. That is slowly going towards NMC 811. So a lot more nickel, a lot less cobalt. My own view is that by mid to late this decade, uh, you'll be, we'll be in a situation where, yes, we're using less cobalt per battery especially with nickel heavy cathodes but you know nickel or excuse me cobalt demand will probably double okay so it's a lot less cobalt per battery but a lot more cobalt overall so 
battery chemistry R&D is, is a huge area, I think, over the next few years. Um, you are likely to see lithium iron phosphate technology also continue to ramp and increase its, its energy density. But, um, you know, for sort of longer distance mobility, NMC and I think NCA are, at least for the next few years, the winners. And that's going to require more cobalt, not less. Chris, if you had to choose, it's a binary choice between nickel and lithium, which one would you be more bullish on and why? Wow. Um, I think that that's a good question. And, you know, I think time frame depends on that. But if if time frame was no sort of issue, I would actually be more bullish on lithium. Um, look, lithium is is not substitutable. OK, you can't really alter the amount of lithium in the battery without pretty major performance implications. Uh, whereas, look, I mean, we're already altering the amount of nickel and, uh, and cobalt and some of these other uh, raw materials in the batteries, and it is having performance implications. So again, you know, you give up the cobalt, but you need more nickel. So there's a trade-off there. I do think that when you look at the nickel market today, um, Again, without getting into too much detail, we're sitting at around, I don't know, $14,000 a ton uh, based on LME pricing. Uh, that has to go to eighteen dollars to $19,000 a ton to, to bring on uh, Greenfield's Class 1 nickel supply. And so, you know, there's a fair amount of upside there. Um, I do think that, you know, where, where the nickel price ultimately sets, I think is still a little bit of an open question, but, you know, there's also upside, uh, in the lithium price as well. Um, I think longer term, you know, you're looking at an $11,000 a ton lithium price that's on an LCE basis, sort of blended between carbonate and hydroxide. But, you know, look, I mean, both nickel and lithium are set to be very, very important. They're my two kind of top picks in the battery space, I think, going forward. But, um, you know, longer term, if I had to choose one, it would be lithium. And I think maybe in the near term, next few years, it would probably be nickel. And would nickel be followed by copper after that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a copper bull. I mean, I know a lot of people throw that out there, but I think that when you look at the CapEx challenges and also just uh, to, to bring new copper supply on stream, and also, when you look at challenges for existing mines, whether or not it's access to water or, or labor strife, which always seems to rear its head, uh, its ugly head, I think, you know, when you use that as sort of the backdrop and then overlay um, incremental demand for EV infrastructure and EVs themselves, I mean, you could be looking at $4 copper uh, relatively quickly, you know, in the next couple of years for sure. I've seen on the road some hydrogen vehicles here in Metro Detroit. Not a lot, but I do see them every now and again. I mean, is there any trend here we should be paying attention to? I mean, there's been a little bit of a buzz in, in you know, the last, I guess, couple of months with Nikola and what they're trying to do with hydrogen trucks. Of course, I think the bloom is a little bit off the rose there from some of the um, challenges that Nikola is having, making making the case for their business. But, you know, more broadly on the on the hydrogen side, I, look, I think it's a well-known technology. Um, I do think it does not really stack up against lithium-ion from a cost perspective. I mean, I think that if hydrogen were really the optimal solution, maybe, you know, there's some environmental differences for sure, but if hydrogen were better than lithium-ion from an economic perspective, then these gigafactories, you know, this scale that you see in terms of lithium-ion build-out, you'd see a lot more hydrogen with respect to fueling stations and 
you know, hydrogen car adoption and things like that. And you're just not seeing that. So, you know, lithium ion may not be the best uh, chemistry or best kind of battery technology across, you know, the entire spectrum, if you will. So mobility and energy storage, but uh, it's good enough. It's got a track record and it's it's very well known. And it's again, it's it's optimal, I would argue, from a cost perspective as well. So not particularly bullish on hydrogen. A week ago, we saw President Trump issue an executive order on addressing the threat to the domestic supply chain from reliance on critical minerals from foreign adversaries. As you read through this executive order, uh, what were the key things that jumped out to you and how might we profit as investors? Yeah, I think, look, any eyeballs on from from that sort of level, uh, any eyeballs on this scheme and on this this deficiency in our domestic industrial base is very positive. Um, I would like to see a little bit less report writing and more capital start to flow into developing the supply chain. And it looks like, you know, that is certainly um on it on its way to happening, I think. But again, you know, just more broadly speaking, build your question. I I liked what I read, but I feel like I've read it before. You know, we, we know that there's a vulnerability here um, domestically. We know that uh, just from the standpoint of economic security and national security being intertwined, we need to start to rebuild these supply chains domestically. I would argue that the energy storage market and the the automotive market just here in North America, never mind the United States, but just in North America is large enough to support a regional decoupled supply chain. So regionalized would be North America, perhaps South America, or you know, with our allies as well. So it, it can be done, you know. And I've I've often uh, commented that it can be done. We have the capital, we have the political will now, which is always the most fickle. Uh, issue. And uh, the question is, do we have the patience to see this through? And the rare earths, could we see a rare earths boom? You know, in terms of the mining stocks, the rare earths can go parabolic. Do you expect anything like that? Because that was addressed in this executive order. Yeah, look, if if the Chinese decide to cut off exports again, you know, sure, you're going to see a, a redo of, of you know, 2011 or 2012 or whenever that was. I, I don't really expect that to happen. Um, you know, there just wasn't as much awareness of Chinese, of, of U.S., I should say, of Western vulnerability of supply chains back then for rare earths as there is today. I do think that, you know, the Chinese would, would keep that kind of economic weapon in their back pocket. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't necessarily think that it would be their first kind of opening opening salvo or something like that. I mean, we've been in this trade war now for Gosh, I don't know. Feels like a lot longer than it probably has been. But um, again, you know, rare earths are not rare. Uh, we know where they are. It's just a question of devoting the 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 capital and the political will to getting this done. I think that you could probably build a domestic rare earth supply chain just here in the United States. You know, you can broaden that out to North America to include Canada for sure. But um, you could do that within five years, okay? And sometimes that, in terms of like mining circles or mining timeframes, five years is a is a drop in the bucket. So, you know, there's a lot of research going into how, how we might do this. Um, you know, is it straight mining and separation and purification? Is it is it mining from mineral sands? I mean, there are a lot of different ways to think about this, but I'm generally speaking happy to see, like I said, eyeballs on this theme from such a sort of a lofty level. 
Chris, you're a self-employed analyst. So before you go, please share a little bit more about what you do and perhaps there's someone listening to us that could be interested in your services. Sure. So uh, for about the last 10 years, I have been, to your point, an independent analyst with a really a sole focus on the lithium-ion supply chain. So really understanding uh, every every piece of that from upstream all the way to downstream. So you know, where is the lithium? Where is the cobalt? What are the economics? You know, what does battery cathode chemistry look like? How is that evolving? Similarly for anodes, all the way down. So really looking at it from an energy perspective as well, I work with um, the financial markets, financial players like hedge funds or, or sovereign wealth funds, for example, helping them understand both threats and opportunities. Um, I work with corporates as well on, on an advisory basis, again, helping some of the mining companies understand sort of the financial intricacies and challenges for, of, of dealing with, with these growing supply chains. And then finally, sort of working with um, government and academia, again, really more from an educational perspective. So what I do is try to sit in in between that triangle, if you will, and help each one of those groups better understand each other and create value and ideally, hopefully, create you know supply chains going forward. If you'd like to reach out to Chris, please do so at discoveryinvesting.com forward slash about. And there you will find Chris's email. And follow him on Twitter. If you're a, just a private investor like myself, follow him at twi- on Twitter at CBerry, the number one. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate your insights. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. 
If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.